All right, I am now joined by David Griscom, um, my friend, co-host of Left Reckoning Podcast, and as of a few days ago, a contributor to Jacobin Magazine, uh, you know, coming in to us from, what state do you live in? Is that like Colorado or something? Something like that. It's nearby. It's uh, Texas. Okay. okay. Yeah. Same thing. <laughs> It's a lot hotter here. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I want to talk about the article for a minute, and then anybody wants to get in the queue, just go right ahead and do that, and I'll take you in a minute. But, um, but yeah, let's talk about the article. It's called, uh, was it Texas Shows the Pitfalls of, uh, of Liberal Climate Politics? So uh, you, you, know, you talk a little bit about... Um, how uh, some of the issues about labor and the fossil fuel industry and uh, uh, and energy, you know, mm-hmm. like public and private energy have played out. And, you know, you kind of use the example of uh, the reactions to uh, to the, the winter storm last year. So so start us up. Take us take us through this. Yeah, I mean, so maybe just to like rewind a bit, like. I've been wanting to write a piece like this for a little while. Um, one, because I've just started to find climate politics is becoming something that I'm spending a lot of my time talking about and writing about and thinking about. Um, and it was really started, um, this wasn't how I got into climate, but uh. the urgency really started to hit me um, when I went to a really large uh, Green New Deal rally here in Austin, Texas. And it was a great event. Mm-hmm. About 600 people showed up. We had wonderful speakers from labor, from all these different sections. And then AOC got up, and there's a whole other story that goes with that. But um, the, the most important bit is that, you know, AOC gave a pretty boilerplate speech in support of the Green New Deal, all well and good. But mm-hmm. then she started pushing um, this idea just off the cuff that what we need to be doing is pursuing energy politics like what's happening in Puerto Rico or because of state failure in Puerto Rico, people are creating small-scale decentralized solar grids. Yeah. And I'm all for uh, solar energy, but it's just this is the kind of small approach to a big, large social program that really gets me nervous. And it was just that uh. moment realizing that you know, she's not saying something particularly wicked, but it's just like this isn't directed the way that we need this to go, particularly in a state that's so energy-rich like Texas. Mm-hmm. Um so I started to get nervous about the like the questions like not just what you know are we going to do something but what is it that we're going to do. Um, so that's what I want to write about um, in the, in Texas because I don't know I mean like Texas is a, produces an incredible amount of energy most of that being fossil fuel but yeah. they also have a very growing wind and solar array. Um, the problem with that is most of that is private ununionized and uh, labor particularly in, in the case of solar residential. Um, so I wanted to write this piece sort of looking at the state of play about labor, energy politics in Texas and sort of start to chart out a path um, to what we need to be doing in the future to not only decarbonize, but also to make sure that we're not importing just like this really precarious um, and neoliberal energy model into you know green technologies. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, so part of what, uh, and, and this is actually really interesting to me because this is like the, um, like 
there's a lot of green politics that has that really valorizes like small and decentralized mm-hmm. um you know solutions uh there's a uh, i mean like the the green party i i you know I, they probably still have it right you know but they have our member from the early 2000s they had like i think 10 key values that was like on all their literature for a while and uh and one of those was something about localism mm-hmm. uh, and this is this is you know kind of all all over the place in in this politics right you know but like it it seems like there are at least two reasons to uh to kind of resist that impulse right one is you know some of what you were just saying that like it's um you know if, if I mean, the whole instinct behind, like, even using phrases like the Green New Deal is to sort of tie together, um, you know, tie together positive climate politics with, you know, with class politics, you know, with, mm-hmm. with the idea of, like, sort of big, expansive government action of the kind that would create, you know, tons of new unionized public sector jobs. And obviously, the sort of local stuff, especially when it plays out in, like, you know, I don't know, tax credits for solar panels and all that stuff mm-hmm. uh, that are, you know, going to be installed by uh, private non-union labor, you know, is, is the opposite of that. And then uh, and then the other is that it's just not going to, it's just not, like, appropriate to the scale of the problem, you know. It's mm-hmm. like the, uh, it's, it's, it's like if the, I don't know, if the, uh, you know, Nazis have occupied France, you know, say, okay, well, I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to get together some guys and, you know, we're going to like go over on our, you know, on our motorboat and like, you you know, you do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, and like, I mean, localism, I think is, is an issue. And I'll just say this, like, I have like the frustration of a convert on this. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, like localism, like the idea of it, like sounds super nice. Trust me, like, you know, I, I spend my time between Austin and some rural parts in central Texas. I have that kind of dream sometimes. But it's not about, like, like the, the critique of localism is not about saying that, like, it's bad that you like to, you know, shop at your local store or something like that. It's that, like, this can be a bit of a, of a fetish, and especially when it comes to energy production, just like anything else, doing it at scale is just going to be far more um, efficient than doing it on a personal residential level. And to do the kind of things that we want to do as socialists, right, which is not just to have energy in, like, a general sense, but yeah. also to have energy being affordable for people and taking care of, of working people, it's really important that we have these systems under public control. I mean, people in Texas know this. Electricity bills have gone up over 100% in the past two years here. Mm-hmm. And that means the squeeze that people are already getting, at, you know, filling up their, their car or truck at the pump is getting even worse at home trying to make sure that you don't suffocate and die in 107-degree weather that we've been getting this summer, right? Like, you know, these kind of patchwork solutions, again, like, I don't judge anybody. I don't think there's anything wrong with residential solar, like, in the abstract. You know, like, I know plenty of people, particularly people who are far from electrical grids, it's been a godsend, and I think that's that's well and good. Um, But as a, you know, statewide or national solution, it doesn't come close to the kind of energy production that we need to be uh, pursuing and particularly like the model that I like the best is building off of something like the TVA, mm-hmm. which remember not only electrified the South, right, and led to mass improvements in the lives of working people there, had a mandate to provide cheap, affordable energy to the working class, right? And that's the secondary part that I think a lot of people forget, along with the fact that it took a wide scope, you know, like it wasn't just like the actual work of setting up power plants and 
distribution centers that was saying we need to build like a community center in this town for mm-hmm. all the workers and like all this other kind of stuff that's baked into the Green New Deal program. And I don't think the left necessarily is allergic to that. I just think that I'm just saying from my own end, I always was like, I'm just going to pursue green candidates yeah. right? like Bernie Sanders. Um, and I don't have to think about the actual plan of what we need to do. That was sort of my mentality for a long time. And only in recently have I started to realize, that, you know, I think we really need to start looking through our, our political strategies here um, as, to, as to what we're doing. Um, but can I add something I think is a really important sure. context here, Ben? Because not only is the piece about labor and wind and solar, a, a, a good chunk of the piece is looking at the oil industry here in Texas. Yeah. And I think that, like, looking at that recent history is really important for building a, a strategy. Where at the height of the pandemic, you know, when the price of um, when the price of oil plummeted, you had all of these corporations, ExxonMobil, etc., lay off hundreds of thousands of workers across the country, around sixty thousand jobs, and that's probably a conservative estimate um, yeah. or shed here. And those were people who work like the real jobs, not people who are sitting in an office in Dallas or Houston, but people right. who put their bodies and lives up the line to pump out um, oil from the from the ground. And you know, we know what fossil fuel does. Um, and we know why we oppose it and want to build a different kind of system. But in the meantime, yeah. you know, that's the necessary energy of how we're, you know, keeping things afloat right now. And those people should be protected and we should be standing with them um, in the immediate sense as they're facing these job cuts. And now what we're seeing is a protracted war on labor. So um, in Beaumont, Texas, for example, there was a 10-month lockout that um, very – and the union there um, ended up having to accept really, really austere – uh, contract deals mm-hmm. where they cut back things that they've been that, that they won 60 years ago um, mm-hmm. and they fought faced the decertification campaign where they eked it out by something like you know 10 votes or something like that right. so they almost lost the union there so the point is that workers in that industry they faced the austerity that was coming with the plummet in price and now they're facing this attempt to try to de-unionize the sector um, and the last bit that I just, it's just important, I think, for you know, uh. have a good conversation on this to understand the like, actual internal dynamics here. The last bit is, okay, well, we're in a different era right now. Gas is really expensive. Well, why is that? Um, mm-hmm. The right wing says, well, it's because Biden's accepted the Green New Deal, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, further from the truth, like just in March alone, um, the Biden administration approved 900 permits in the Permian Basin. Um, he's yeah. sprinting past Trump when it comes to opening up federal and publicly owned land for oil and gas um, exploration and drilling. Um, so what's going on? Why is the price so high? Add the actual, add the actual like supply right now. Uh, is it, you know, historic levels? I mean, like that's, that's, you know, I mean, that doesn't actually seem to be the issue. No. And like, of course there's pressures on it. Just like there's pressures on every industry. They know a lot of times they talk about supply chain stuff and there's no doubt that that's playing a role, but you know what the biggest thing that's happening right now it's historic. The EIA, which is the government agency that sort of regulates and researches the oil and gas industry, this uh. is from their own report. The amount of money that these corporations are taking, ExxonMobil, all these other oil and gas exploration companies, are taking from their windfall profits, they're not taking that and reinvesting that into production or really trying to rehire all those people that they fired two years ago. They're paying off shareholders in the form of dividends. And why are they doing that? It's because, and this is the point the socialists need to remember, is uh. that... It's not about moralism. It's not about trying to change the heart of the mean guy uh, who runs the company. It's that these are organizations, and their one goal is to make profit. 
So in a moment like this, they want to ensure the financial industry that, hey, you know, we might have bad times like we did two years ago. But when we times get good again, we're going to send you a check. Right. And like until you recognize that the billions of dollars are probably trillions of dollars invested in, in the future of oil and gas, those people who invested in and want to get realization on, on that investment, we won't get anywhere here. So, you know, it's a twofold point. like understanding finance capital calls the shots. All this bullshit about overregulation is just uh-huh. that. Um, and two, that in the industry right now, these workers have experienced in just very recent memory, um, a little preview of what will happen, for example, um, if, you know, we do divert more of our economy away from fossil fuels, which means that we have this really golden window, this opportunity here to get a lot of that union labor on our side in a, pushing for a transition, mm-hmm. not just as like passive viewers, but as active participants in leading that, that, that transition. Yeah, I mean, because this is something you highlighted the article that like uh, people talk about a just transition, like sometimes it can feel a little bit like an afterthought or like something mm-hmm. that's sort of being, you know, thrown in just so it's it's kind of in there, but it's not really the uh, the emphasis. And, you know, and I, mean, I, I mean, what you were saying earlier about the sort of wacky Republican talking point about, you know, Joe Biden adopting the Green New Deal and that being why gas prices are high. Mm-hmm. Uh like as silly as that is, I mean, I think that what it, you know, the fact that it works as well for them as it does really shows that, you know, that that phrase has been, you know, Green New Deal, right? You know, has has been really uh, effectively spun as, so, yeah. No, so as as my friend Ryan Pollock, who I cited in the piece, he's a really great union organizer here at the IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Uh-huh. He got the Texas AFL-CIO to endorse federal environmental policy, which was effectively like a shell of a Green New Deal without the buzzwords. So, like, the policy itself has support within the union. But, yeah, there's a whole political apparatus which is trying to inoculate people of it. And I think the point and what the lesson to learn there is less so like, oh, my God, all these people are wrapped up in ideology. But remembering the fact that for union workers in Texas and West Virginia, all across this country, they've been promised a lot of stuff by Democrats. Yeah, <laughs> and it never shows up. So it's not that just transition is a bad idea. It's the, it is the idea. It's what we should be fighting for. But you know, if if we're just saying things to these guys, like in ten years we're going to have a just transition for y'all, and we're uh-huh. not showing up for Beaumont guys when they're getting locked out for ten months against one of the most wicked corporations in the world. I mean, it's not that difficult to understand why there's not a lot of trust. Um, totally. And, you know, and like this is the the transition, and I think we need to start um, doing is like one moving from just like we should do something to starting to think about what we actually want to do. And then uh. two um, moving from like slogans and policy papers to action. Right. Where it's like, I, the reason, like I love the just transition. I remember when Bernie Sanders first put out his plan, just uh. being so hopeful about the future. And I still do about that idea, but I realized from being in this movement for so long that I think a lot of people, they they're like, no, well, we've already figured that out. We have the just transition on like the Bernie Sanders website. And it's just like, that's not enough. It has to be a much more serious commitment to these folks. Uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I think that, I mean, like in, in a way it's really depressing because I think that the way that, that phrase, you know, green new deal has been kind of spun and toxified is like uh, almost the opposite of what the point is. Right. I mean, cause the whole point is I've always understood of calling it the green new deal. Right, you know, is is to evoke the New Deal, right? To say that it's this is like the 
this big like uh expansion you know of uh of of federal spending and and social support that's bound up in uh in environmental policy but i think the way that it's been effectively spun is like really kind of is the opposite is like eco austerity right i mean that's why there was all that stuff you know from like a few years ago where they they were like played up the idea that like somehow the green new deal was going to mean that you know you weren't allowed to eat a hamburger anymore yeah <laughs> or cow farts right <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right know. yeah I mean, it's just like this is also trying to move this movement from the people who, you know, I give them a lot of credit for doing this for years when it was dark and they were lonely, but moving this from the kind of NGO activist sphere mm-hmm. to the sphere of politics, right? Um, where it doesn't help when we see like the rise on the left of things like degrowth, right? Which mm-hmm. just any kind of person in, in that world, uh, in the union world, knows exactly what that's what is going to end up meaning looking like for them and, and and the workers they represent so like we're in a difficult moment and like for me at least and like you know texas is a is a quagmire for a lot of reasons politically right now we're not in power like we're nowhere near close to power so this is like especially for the left and i mean like the democratic socialist left in, in particular this is the time that we should be building inroads because uh. At the same time, while you know we are out, out, out of power, we're, we're organizing and we're growing. There's a lot of really exciting things happening uh, with progressive candidates in the state. And I think there's never been a better time to sort of introduce a new kind of brand of politics because I talk to my union friends here and they say, mm-hmm. you know, for us, it's like it's sort of worthless to endorse Democrats at this point. Like We always do. And then they always lose. And then the Republican <laughs> who wins sort of wants to you know, come at us. And I. The suggestion there isn't that they um, support Republicans, but rather that there's sort of an opportunity here where it's like the national and the state Democratic Party aren't really showing up for them. But there's no uh. reason to like sort of fear a, um, a deep connection there for the union labor movement here that we can really be using to bring people into the, the socialist movement and also really embedding the left here in the labor movement instead of just sort of watching it from the outside. Yeah, um, so, I mean, I guess I wonder, too, right, you know, that the, uh, you know, whether, I mean, obviously, as you say, right, I mean, in Texas or nationally, you know, uh, to different degrees, right, you know, we're hilariously far from from holding power, but, like, uh, but, you know, in terms of what we're, you know, advocating at least, um, you know, I mean, I think about the, you know, the crisis with, you know, with rising, you know, gas prices and, um, you know, and like what we can at least say, you know, that like what we would advocate, like what we would do, right. You know, if, if we're, if we're in power and, um, and I, I think like, I mean, it's funny cause, cause I mean, I think that the thing that, uh, you know, I mean, just sort of like, you know, thought experiment, right? I mean, somehow the socialist left is in a position to make policy right now. You know, what would it what would it be? You know, and I, mm-hmm. I have to think that, you know, since there's this sort of like urgent, immediate thing that, you know, people can't afford to fill up their cars and go to work, you know, and then there's the and then there's the looming climate crisis, you know, that there's a sort of way of putting that together that, you know, that we that like, look, that we should want the uh, oil and gas industry uh, to uh, to be put under public ownership, so 
you know, we can, you know, run it in public interest and sell it cheaply for like as long as we need it, but also <laughs> euthanize it as quickly as possible in favor of something else that, you know, without, um, you know, without, uh, you know, without putting anybody through the, the periods of unemployment that they would get from, you know, the sort of transition between, you know, industries, you know, when they're in private hands. And, and that feels very like utopian and, and kind of fanciful, right? You know, I say it right now, but it's also sort of ridiculous that it feels utopian and fanciful because mm-hmm. there are plenty of countries that have put their energy industries under public ownership. That's like really, really far from being unprecedented. I, I, I totally agree. And <laughs> I mean, I, not to run away from the, the thought experiment, I mean, like the answer here is like, um, you know, you look at what's happened with electricity in Texas, like people realize how serious that industry is for their life and livelihood. It's not an abstraction, right? With uh, the winter storm, which ended up, you know, killing, um, you know, nearly 100 people. And that's probably, again, a conservative estimate. Um, there's a lot of talk about what we want to do with the grid here. And like a lot of the fight has been this kind of culture war, like Republicans don't like wind. Democrats uh, like wind. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's like no doubt about it that um, and reminding folks that like the reason the grid failed was one, because of the actual physical freezing over of the natural gas pipelines, um, but also because we have a really absurd overmarketized system in Texas, one of the, wor- the worst in the country. Right. Um, where you have basically a constant auction house going, which meant for the guys um, who own those natural gas pipelines that there was no real incentive for them to weatherize them because if they lose, right, if their pipeline freezes over, they lose revenue for like two, three days, right? Yeah. Much less than what it would cost to weatherize those systems. And if you end up being one of the guys who's holding the lottery ticket and the systems, you know, your pipelines are still flowing when the, when the temperature drops, you make uh-huh. millions of dollars. Right. So what's what's been frustrating for me, too, is that, like, the fight here has been this kind of culture war battles. Like, do you like wind or do you like natural gas? Right. Uh-huh. Instead of like the, the, the critique. And I'm not saying that those distinctions are, are unimportant. Sure. But like the fundamental issue here is that we have a for profit privatized grid, um, which is not designed to pro- it, it, like the fact that it provides power to Texans is an afterthought to that. System, right. If you get what I mean, you know. Um, and like, that's where like, there's a real opening for us because people are really, really bad. And because like, we don't have the organization that we need right now, what's ended up happening is people are mad, like personally, you know, or people are doing things as individuals on the marketplace, like putting up residential solar, which again, is not necessarily a bad thing, but like, it's just like, this is an individual action. Yeah, it's not a bad thing for an individual to do, but it's not a solution to anything. It's also, it's also expensive. So it's, it's a privilege that like the wealthy get basically to do something like that. It's not something that's available to most people, let alone renters, right? Which is ending up, which is like the vast majority of working people in the state. Right. Okay, we've got a call from uh, Brian. Uh, Brian, are you with us? Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, I, uh, you guys are, are on a lot of very good points right now. I, I do want to jump back just a few steps because uh, you were highlighting the fact that we need to be more uh, specific and clear about what we mean about a just transition. And I just wanted to, A, absolutely double that up and note that, like, not only are, like, current uh, uh, unions of current uh, miners and oil refiners getting smashed, but also the pensions of the already retired are being smashed. Mm. And 
the renewable industries are very, very poorly utilized currently. So, like, we are making an awful lot of promises to people, and then and they're looking around, and they're being like, well, you're saying that I'm either going to land in the renewable industry or have a very good pension, and both of those look very <laughs> bad right now. <laughs> no, no, I mean, so that's I, point, Brian. Like, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. You're good. I mean, I, I, I totally agree. When I talk to my friends, you know, who are union members here, particularly in the electrical working system, like they remind me time and time again that everybody in that industry knows that installing solar plant panels right now is like a, is a bad job. You know, it's a horrible job. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're not making much money, and they, it's you know, to use a kind of internet term, it's like greenwash, right? It's like, oh, well, we're powering the future, so it's okay that we pay poorly, or we pay you only by per panel installation instead of by the hour. And also, like, one thing to note about um, solar in particular is that unlike other kind of energy sources, it's not a permanent job, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, once, once you install it, it's pretty much set for a while, which means that you have to get people. It's not something that's going to, like, renew a community for a long period of time. Rather, like, the people – I know people who work here in Austin, and they get, like, opportunities. They might be IBEW workers, you know, doing uh, work here, and they'll get, like, oh, well, do you want to drive to Dripping Springs – you know, 40 minutes out of town to install panels. They're like, absolutely not. <laughs> it's just like, it, 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 just, it doesn't provide that option for folks. And I think that like, uh, like security, and I think that we need to get much more serious about that. And of course, like there's federal policy that plays a role here. Um, certainly like we can be fixing the residential system um, mm-hmm. very quickly. Oh yeah. Um, and I just wanted to uh, double up on one more point, which is, the uh, the privilege of having solar panels. Um, it would turn out that that I know a few folks whose pensions weren't destroyed and who currently get to uh, and currently have some solar panels up enough to like do their whole power output and put some back on the grid. And here in New Jersey, like we actually have a pretty good setup for such people, and they get tax credits back for the energy that they give to the grid and so on. But now th- this guy feels like he like he's done his bit, you know, th- that his his part of climate change is over. He can go to his grave not guilty anymore. Um, and I'm just like, no, dude, like you're you're supposed to be a unionist. You should know that like we have a big collective solution here. Uh, but yeah, um, it looks like we, you guys have another caller, so I'm going to uh, let you guys go. But yeah. Good, good. Yeah, I was just uh, I was just thinking about the thing about the pensions too, um, and uh, and it was it was reminding me because I just wrote something about it for the the Daily Beast of the um, you know the Texas uh, Republican platform, which to be fair, as you reminded <laughs> me, uh, represents the view of like a you know like minority of a hardcore of like Republican activists who are a minority even for Texas Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but, but I think it is telling, um, the, uh, well, they also the guys who get themselves to be elected, right? Like, yeah, state power is scary, even if people don't agree. Yeah. I mean, they have a, I mean, to be fair, I think that the hardcore party activists like are more hardcore even than like primary voters. Right. So like the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you do get, you know, uh, you do get people who win, you know, like primaries texts who are you know more moderate than what's reflected in the platform which is not saying much but um but um but yeah i mean like i I do think that there is a common drift there and like it 
uh, and it it like has uh, you know like one of the lines of the platform is you know we support the privatization of social security right you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, also, also just like a quick point for people who might not be familiar too I made this to you Ben on the um, on the issue of the uh, of the of the convention versus like the voters John Cornyn got like seventy plus percent of the vote in his primary and he got booed at the convention. You know, like now he's like enemy number one of the people who buy the tickets and drive down to the convention. Right? Which is like it's not to say it's not a threat, it's actually very frightening. I take it very seriously. But like this is like us trying to like you know, move from critique to like politics is understanding that like it does represent a small base of folks, which makes it easier for us to imagine ways to beat it, if that makes sense. Versus sitting there and thinking all of your neighbors, for example, are all these kind of rabid guys. Um, instead of understanding that, like, no, it's like activists are going really nuts right now and they have power and they're being listened to. So we should, we should take that threat seriously. But even with the average Republican voter, this, this kind of activist mentality doesn't represent them. Right. No, which is, which is important and good. But yeah, um, in the. Um, they did say, sorry, but can I just. Yeah, <laughs> I hate please. This policy, but like. I just found this to be one of the funniest lines of the convention um, in the in the program. There's just like we we reject California style driving policies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> talking about bike lanes, but dude, it's like I don't know. I've been to I've been to Los Angeles. I don't know what like <laughs> driving policies they have there. They're such a threat to highways. Yeah. Yeah. No. God forbid anybody put in a bike lane in the uh, uh, city of Texas. But yeah, that's. Um, but yeah, and I mean, like, so the the contrast. I mean, the point I was making the Daily Beast article was like a really simple point, you know, which is just like, you know, there's just this amazing contrast between at least the, you know, this this document approved by the hardest core of uh, mm-hmm. of Texas Republicans and the way that like um, Ted Cruz, for example, has has tried to rebrand the party. If you look at the CPAC speech from last year, where he. <laughs> He lists off the uh, all of these categories of you know he says that it's not the party of the country clubs anymore it's the party of and he does this like prose poetry where he like rattles off all these categories of blue collar jobs <laughs> and uh, you know it's like uh, you know you think about the um, you know like and, and so like one of them was like pipeline workers and I see what he's doing there right you know because mm-hmm. he's like oh see we want to have jobs for pipeline workers but then I think about your you know, what you relayed about the, uh, the situation in Beaumont, you know, it's like, yeah, no, these people are really, on, you know, on the side of like the material interests of pipeline workers. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Or like he doesn't want to protect your pension. So he wants you, he wants to protect your right to work in an ununionized industry for the lowest, you know, bitter, uh, not really fight for like a nice job and living standard for you. Yeah. Which is actually something I think we should find more and better ways of communicating because it's like, I, I find I think that like supposedly populist Republicans often have this like rhetorical bait and switch where they they get a lot of mileage off of the sort of collective memory of good mm-hmm. industrial jobs. Like um you know, if you look at like JD Vance's uh campaign materials, you know, in Ohio that they like that's a that's a good, you know, good example of this that there's like or like Trump, you know, going around and pretending that he was going to bring back the coal mines to Appalachia, and the uh, you know factories to Youngstown. It's like, well, look, why do people miss those jobs? It's mm-hmm. not because working at a coal mine is particularly fun, right? Like, you know, that the 
you know, like, uh, or, you know, Youngstown, right? I mean, when, like, my mom grew up in Youngstown and, like, everybody was getting cancer from industrial pollution and it was just, like, it was, like, pretty awful in many ways, right? I mean, the thing that was, the reason why people miss those jobs is because, uh, is because they, they went along with a middle-class standard of living. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's not, but that's not like an aid in the job, right? I mean, it's not like you can't have a coal mine where everybody who works there has a shitty standard of living. In fact, most coal mines throughout history have been like that, right? You know, they, uh, it's, I mean, those are the product of like powerful industrial unions, you know, and of course anything that like, you know, usually the reindustrialization rhetoric is bullshit anyway, you know, they're not even going to do it, but like, um, but even if they were right, I mean, they, they wouldn't, you know, it's like. Trump and J.D. Vance and, like, Masters and all of these, you know, everybody in the Peter Thiel-verse, you know, like, they're, they're not, you know, any any industrial jobs they would be bringing back wouldn't come with the uh, the unionization that actually made those good jobs. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's, uh, let's take the uh, last caller, and then we'll probably wrap up. Uh, Sean, what's on your mind? Hello? Yep. Yep. Yeah, um, so... Coming from the UK, where pretty much right and left wing uh, admit that climate change is a problem and needs to be solved, I wonder whether, because your analysis is all about kind of industrial workers and they're the ones we want to kind of get on board, it ignores the fact, at least in my perception, I admit I've never been to the US, so I could be terribly wrong here, but that a lot of anti-climate change stuff comes not from these people, but from a kind of evangelical um, well, the end days are coming anyway, so who cares? Or it's good that it's going to happen because it will hasten the end days. And that seems to make up a significant amount of like conservative anti-climate um, policy and also probably the area that it would have to be tackled at some point. Because like, this is a powerful political group. Probably more powerful than you know, your kind of Appalachian workers or, or whatever else, right? At least from sitting from a a different country, that's how it appears. And it doesn't seem like their belief is material, right? It doesn't seem to be materially based. It just seems to be, um, I don't know, some kind of strange biblical view. Well, I mean, I, 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 I hear your point. I mean, one thing that's sort of notable, and I'm not saying that that threat has gone away, um, but one of the big ironies of uh, what's happened right now with the abortion decision for the Supreme Court and also like the, the laws that have been passed here in Texas has actually been a weakening of the importance of the evangelical movement within the Republican Party. Um, they're, they're not as strong as they were during the Bush years, and that's sort of why they're getting taken care of right now, um, ironically. But, like, um, I mean... I think, like, if you're talking about, like, pure political numbers, I would I would not um, think that I would agree with the idea that that is, like, a majority um, movement in the sense of, like, a voting block rather than a, like, a very, very loud and very well-organized and very well-funded part of the political movement. Um, but maybe to expand it a bit, I mean, I think that, like, a decent amount of, like, anti-climate um, politics that you get from, like, your everyday person, mm-hmm. I think has... Is is a little bit less like it's less rooted, but it's it's still very pervasive. And what I mean by that is, it's just like they you know they they don't recognize it, and they think that this is like whiny liberal stuff that they're going to oppose. And that's why I drive I, not me, but 
um, you know, F-350 pickup truck, and I don't care um, about what that might mean for, like, the, the environment, right? I think that, like, there certainly is a cultural element to it, but I don't know if I would think that you could actually place that solely within the evangelical movement, in fairness. But maybe I, I, I made an ad. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, you go for it, Sean. Well, I, I just wonder, maybe evangelical, um, I, I included in that kind of just general Christians. I don't know, again, I, I don't really know yeah, too much about yeah. the sociology of it, but it just seems that they seem to be a big anti-climate voice. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it is true that uh, you know, right-wing religious people, particularly evangelicals, are still, you know, are still a big voting block. I mean, like, they're less prominent in a way, right, in the, in the Republican coalition than they were. And I do think their absolute numbers have actually declined, uh, definitely, actually. But, the, um, but like, you know, but they're, they're, still, they're still a very, like, reliable, you know, voting totally. block. You know, I, I tell about it, their absolute numbers declining might be true. I wonder since maybe Jerry Falwell, but I wonder if they've become more anti-climate, um, solving the climate problem. Even so though the numbers have declined, they've become more anti-climate uh, you know, change policy than they were maybe in the 70s and 80s. But on the specific question of like climate change and Green New Deal policy, I think the thing you have to remember is like, you know, just somebody who's sitting here and I talk to lots of folks, you know, um, particularly like conservatives because of like the kind of stuff I like to do. Um, a lot of times it really is attached, like people don't realize particularly for like what it means for working Texans, but like being able to go and be a roughneck for a few years holds up like a very important, like it's a very important idea for folks, which is like, you don't need a college education. You don't need all this kind of stuff. You can go and you can work and you can make significant amounts of money in these fields. And like, when I talk to people more often than not, it's actually this attachment um, you know, to this idea of like there being really good jobs and like a ticket out for folks. And I think, again, like this is why, you know, I've been making this argument. It's like it's it's an anti-fossil fuel argument, but it's a pro-fossil fuel worker argument. And I right. think that like finding a way to thread that needle is really, really important. And, and like for me, the most frustrating thing and, and the hurdle that I'm seeing um, on top of all the other stuff that we have to knock out is that a lot of people on the left, particularly people in like bigger cities who are further away from that industry, on the left, are really allergic to the idea of showing up for folks. Even if they might support the just transition in, like, the abstract, showing up for the guys in Beaumont is not on their agenda. Yeah, right. Now, that makes sense. I, I, I guess I'd also just make a distinction. Uh, thank you to both callers. Um, just want to move into kind of wrapping up the discussion now. But, uh, but I think I would also make a distinction between... Um, the sort of motivations of the opposition and mm. what it would take to beat them. Right. You know, so like, uh, on the one hand, like, look, I think that the, um, I mean, I sure look, I, I do think that the, you know, I do think that evangelicals are, are still a very potent force in reactionary politics and that should be taken seriously. Uh, and you know, on, on every issue, uh, but, like, you know, the main reason, I mean, in terms of, like, the people with, like, the worst climate politics, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, Republicans, conservatives, I mean, the, like, look, the, the main source of the opposition is just that, like, a lot of people are making a lot of money off the uh, the energy status quo, right? I mean, like, that's, you know, I mean, that's not that, uh, I, I don't think you need to go looking for, you know, like, I mean, that's, like, the sort of main thing, and then they have various strategies for getting ordinary people on board with them that we've been kind of talking about. 
Uh, but then, like, but then there's a slightly separate question I want to I'd want to analyze separately, which is like, okay, but like, what what would it what would it take to to defeat these people politically? And one of the things I like about your article is that you emphasize that like we can't just think about this in terms of this sort of abstraction about like taking climate, you know, like sort of like believing in climate science mm-hmm. or taking it seriously or whatever. Cause it's like, I mean, that's kind of what Democrats have been writing for like 40 years now. Right. You know, that it's like, Oh, at least we believe it's happening. Right. You know, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, so, so it's like, if, if our analysis of what, what is necessary for the scale of the problem is something along the lines of what people are, are getting at when they use phrases like green new deal, then, like the question is like, okay, but like, what's the what's the strategy that it would take to uh, to actually achieve that? And if you think mm-hmm. that what it would take to actually achieve that would be like really mobilizing like broad and deep sort of uh, working class support, then this stuff about the sort of concerns of of workers in the energy industry, I think, becomes extremely relevant to that. Oh, for sure. And I, I just want to make one thing really clear too up top that like. Because yeah. I don't want people to mistake me as like lionizing the jobs in the oil and gas industry. Like sure. they're very precarious, um, and 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 that's actually one thing that's a big hurdle into organizing is a lot of a lot of people in that industry. One, a lot of them are young and they don't have families, so like the precarity is not as threatening to them as somebody who's like I have to live in this community forever because I have kids here or something like that, right? Right. And two, there's this kind of understanding that's like, this is a boom and bust industry and like, you know, if you get screwed, that's part of the, you know, you're riding the bull, you know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of of mentality. So, you know, there's a lot of problems within that industry. So I just don't want people to think that like, this is a model for what we want to be creating in in the future. But that being said, um, it has been a ticket um, to some level of like middle class um, income for folks. And, you know, that's why it's, 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 it's tremendously... Um, important, even if it is a lot of it like sort of propaganda from um, from the outside. But and, and 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 I should say, I mean, like, look, even if a lot of it is propaganda, I mean, one of the reasons, like, okay, I had um, uh, this is a weird poll, but like a a couple weeks ago, I watched uh, a. Uh, episode of Bill Maher for the first time in a long time because I don't, you know, particularly enjoy the show and like I, um, but uh, I watched because our friend uh, Crystal Ball was uh, was on there at a point that she was making I think very powerfully in, in, in her discussion with with, uh, with with Bill was like, look all of this like liberal politics where people obsess about you know, Donald Trump as a individual, you know, is like it's not like there's nothing there but like it misses the larger point. Like, why do people, you know, like, like, why did something like, why could something like January 6th happen in the first place? Why did enough people believe the sort of deranged lies of an obvious con man, you know, for that to, uh, for that to happen? And I, and I mean, I think that like people will often believe pretty ridiculous propaganda if it's like the only game in town, right? In other words, if like people are offering you a vision of some of the things that you want that like doesn't quite make sense. But like, if you're not being offered, you know, something better that's mm-hmm. real, right. You know, like you might just start to, to believe the, the, the phantasm of it. Right. I mean, it's like, well, you know, look, do I, you know, like, you know, 
Was there ever there any particularly good reason to believe that Trump was going to bring all those jobs back? Not really, but at least he was talking about it, right? You know, so it's like mm-hmm. you know, he might as well, right? And there's something like, even if a lot of those oil and gas jobs aren't that great, right? I mean, like if 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 there's at least sort of rhetoric that's tied to some sort of good jobs, then like that's you know, I mean, I mean, if the implied contrast is to like, you know. Like think about like the energy and job policies of like the Obama administration, who's yeah, yeah. you know, Learn to solu- code. yeah, exactly. Like whose solution to uh, you know to deindustrialization and uh, you know like the loss of the coal mining jobs was literally to tell like middle aged retired coal miners to learn how to code, you know, just sort of sprinkling some technology training centers through Appalachia, right? I mean, it's like if that's the contrast, then yeah, even if it doesn't quite make sense, right? The people who are at least talking about something, you know some sort of allegedly good jobs are still going to win. So here's the challenges that I make to myself and, and the left on this question, right? Yeah. Is one, we have to push back against this idea that like climate policy, renewable policy is going to be something that is going to mean a standard of decline, uh, a decline in the standards of living for working people. Yeah. We have to defeat that, that mentality. And it needs to be something that not only is saying, Hey, you know, we're going to do this thing, but actually this is going to improve your life. One way to do that is by making the arguments for TBA style programs that lower the cost of electricity for folks. And that is a big deal, especially mm-hmm. in Texas, a big deal for people. Um, two, it's to speak, it's to let working people and people with industry knowledge be leading this kind of fight and thinking about the ways that we can transition these, these um, systems in a, in a serious and well thought out manner. And, and lastly, and I think maybe one way to think about this is remember that when you're talking about doing this kind of stuff that we, you know, mm-hmm. we're pushing on the left, which is correct, that we need to go towards a green future, renewable future, etc. We are saying to people, we need you to radically reformulate the way that energy is produced in this society. And that's mm-hmm. a big thing to ask. I think we're right to ask it. But remember that that's a big thing to ask. That we need to be thinking through what that means. And what that looks like and not just feel that because we have like the morality on our side and the reality of climate change on our side, that that somehow, um, you know, precludes us from having to think about this this roadmap in a serious, serious way. Like there are criticisms of green policy that aren't necessarily coming from like the right wing or anti-climate movements, but from people who are saying, I'm looking at this system. I don't know if this actually makes a lot of sense in reality. Right. For example, how we started this conversation you know, when AOC, and I don't mean to pick on her because sure. I think she's promoted a lot of things, it's just an offhand comment that she made, frankly, um, that, like, we should be moving to decentralized personal solar grids, right? Like, that's not that's not a serious climate policy. And it's just, like, we need to hold ourselves to a very high standard because we're asking for something very, very big. Um, and, and we need to be more comfortable and articulate and well-versed in these systems. And I'm not perfect on that. I've been having to do a lot of, you know, work to sort of, catch myself up in understanding how these systems actually work in practice. But like that is the work that needs to be done to meet this challenge, which is so big. Well, that is a perfect note to end on. Um, everybody should go read David's article in, uh, in Jacobin. I hope the first of many and, uh, everybody should, uh, watch or listen to, uh, left reckoning. That's on Wednesday nights. Yeah. Wednesdays at seven central. And we do Griscom streams um, Tuesday afternoons where you can come by and ask me questions in the chat. They're a little bit interactive. Nice. All right, brother. Talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Really enjoyed hanging out with you.